0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the Ethical Panda family of podcasts. And I'm Andy Nelson from
1: the Next Real Film Podcast.
0: And today we're talking about Minute 100, which begins with Loki struggling under the hammer and ends with a Bifrost coming apart. Joining us to show today, we have Dr. Arnold Blumberg, publisher, author, educator, pop culture and comics historian, and friendly neighborhood zombie expert. Arnold, it's been so good having you with us. What's kind of your overall take on these five minutes we've gotten to watch together?
2: Well, when I was first looking for uh, what you had available to do, one of the things that drew me to it was, well, this is like the turning point of the film, the climactic Mm -hmm. peak here where everything's coming together, and it's interesting that I feel it encapsulates as we've been talking about in the past few episodes, it encapsulates a lot that's great and a lot that's become essentially problematic about the MCU, which is the way they structure their finales and what those finales come to be. At this point, everything's still relatively new for all of us, but this idea of giant blue energies and explosions and things being our capping point, I mean, that's you know, it's, it's very much a cliche, and they didn't create it but it's an interesting it's an interesting sequence and i think we've already talked quite a bit about how its greatest strength is that it relies on character in the midst of all of that you
0: know doctor strange is not my favorite movie or my favorite character but It's the only one I can think of where the ending really breaks that trope, where, you know, it ends with our character basically outsmarting the the villain instead of having this great climactic fight with the blue energy and all this kind of stuff. I love the
2: ending of that one. Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah. So good. It's
2: such a great twist.
0: All right. We'll get into all that more in just one moment.
1: If you've thought about becoming a member, now's the time. Get signed up and you'll get all of our episodes a week early and you get our hiatus episodes, which will be dropping between this season and the next. To learn more, go to truestory.fm slash Minute, and you can find out what we offer to all of our wonderful patrons. It's only $5 a month or you can get a discount if you join at the annual rate.
0: Like so many of these minutes, uh, the minute opens with uh, Loki finishing his his berating of Thor. And he's saying, you know, all the strength you have, what good's it to you now? And and kind of getting that thing I was getting to at the end of the last minute of that Thor now has a new problem. of He does have his power. Everything's back. And he doesn't know what to do. What's happening with Loki here? Is Loki, is this him trying to fight the idea that he's beaten? Is that he really thinks that at least he'll still destroy the Jotuns? What's happening in Loki's head right now?
1: Uh, again he has no tools except his his silver tongue at this point to to throw words at his brother and try to find ways to hurt him or dig at him or slow his slow his own thought process down so that thor spends time thinking about what loki's saying rather than focusing on the problem at hand and uh, it's just it's uh, at this point it's the only tool Loki has and I I find it interesting the way that he approaches it here.
2: One of my favorite things about this part is something that it's hard for me to explain. I can't think of like a quick like a phrase like how to explain it, but it's one of the things I always enjoy about this kind of dynamic between a hero and an enemy. It's the part where Thor decides this the only solution is he's going to destroy the bridge, right? and And Loki's reaction is again, Hiddleston's great at getting tears in his eyes. He's just got this like mania at that point. And, like, what are you doing? And I always love when an enemy who clearly is capable of murder and destruction and so much seems absolutely thrown by the notion that the hero would choose to do something big in order to save the day. It's like what did you think he was going to do? This is a huge event, <laughs> but it's like this idea that like somehow he didn't really believe Thor was going to act, you know, in some notable way. And I love when that happens because it shows like a limitation of thought on his part. Like he didn't really think Thor was going to do something.
1: And it's a, it's just a great beat. Well, much like he said, or you know how he alluded to the fact that no one's ever thought to use the Bifrost as a weapon, yeah, uh, which he's you know it, he had that idea to do so that he could just wipe out the entire race, destroy the planet, and be done with it. Same thing here. It's like Thor. It's almost like Thor took a lesson from Loki, and so it's just like what what is the one way I can actually stop this from happening. That will actually stop it from happening without having to kind of lead to the the end of, of Jotunheim. And I don't know if Thor would have that quickly have thought of this before. But the fact that, you know, if he drives Mjolnir into the bridge and actually breaks the, the energy transmission from the Rainbow Bridge into the observatory, I don't, I don't know if, if that would have happened. So it's it's really interesting to see him kind of go through that process and come to this decision.
0: And part of what I love is that Loki is berating Thor, and Thor is not engaging back. You know, Thor doesn't turn to him and go like, you think I can't do it? Well, watch this. Mm -hmm. In some level, it looks like Thor is so lost in thought, he's not even paying attention to Loki. He's just coming to the recognition of what he has to do and deciding to do it.
2: And you can argue the degree to which it really works this way or not, but I think it's also like there to be read as, like, when when Loki underscores the idea that, like, hey, you destroy the bridge, you're never going to see her again. It's also the idea of the hero making the heroic sacrifice. In this case, you yeah, yeah, the absolutely. sacrifice of a potential love and everything. Although, every you know, how long will that last when you have a series going? But still, it, it's a sacrifice. And I I think your point is excellent, too. Like, he doesn't engage Loki because he's not doing this as an expression of strength or the broy kind of thing of I'm better than you. He's doing it as a grand sacrifice of everything that he's learned and the person he's become that like, I'm going to be the better person and, and lose the thing I've discovered about myself and lose the person that I'm falling in love with in order to save the day. He's become a hero in this moment, basically. Right, which I think is also a great example of like Branagh probably like as director and storyteller. It's like here's how you set up a hero journey kind of moment, you know,
0: definitely,
1: and it's a great one. He's had his self sacrifice earlier, back when he's fighting the destroyer, and here he's like the you know I'm going to have to sever this relationship between this this woman that I love and allow to sacrifice that as well in order to save everybody.
0: Here I have a single knit that has to be picked, so. As we've established, the Bifrost is what connects Asgard to every other realm out there. It's what allows Asgardians to travel to these other realms, where, as we learned at the beginning, like Asgardians have this responsibility to help take care of all these other realms. Although, granted, we've pulled back from that somewhat. I get why it works for the dramatic moment, but I have to, this moment always like kind of pulls me out because I look at it going, you're about to sever all connection between asgard and every other realm and this woman you've kissed once who you start you met 72 hours ago that's the biggest consequence anyone can think of like I, I i get that we're just supposed to go with it but it just felt that it was like the one really off note for me in this movie is like there's so much that happens when you break this connection and yes. thor is deciding to do that on behalf of all of asgard that's why odin's eyes like pop open And all we're thinking about, like, first Loki and then Thor saying not, like, forgive me Asgard, forgive me Odin, forgive me Jane. It just, I just can't buy it in that moment.
2: Well, I'll also throw in one other thing, and I don't know what you guys think, and I'm I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me. But also, it doesn't help that moment, I guess, that there's literally zero chemistry between Hemsworth and Natalie Portman. (laughs) I've always thought anyway. And it's, it, it just feels like these two really don't belong together. So if that's what we're hinging our emotional turning point on. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, and, and again, I think it's that you're just, supposed, like you said, you're just supposed to go with the, the sort of, uh, we said trope a lot, but it's a, the whole idea of, you know, the hero and his love and that's, that's the grandest thing of all, right. Is that love is going to be what he loses.
0: I've definitely seen some chemistry between the two of them. I, I used to think there was very little. I I, th- I think this rewatch has done it. I will also say, though, that to me, the bar of no chemistry that was set between Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen <laughs> is so very, very low True. that this seems miles above that because it's not that. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's It just is – this feels very show don't tell this very feels tell don't show you know the movie has not made hasn't made me believe that he would care about her that much but even more so there's just so much
2: else happening when you break this bridge fair enough yeah and you're right at least there's no sand in this one so oh god yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> i i guess i end up you know you know finding myself justifying it and and feeling okay about it and i i think a lot of it is because sure i mean it is kind of a consequence that affects nine realms. It it is well, al- although I mean, our understanding is Asgard seems to be the only ones who can actually use the Bifrost because they have Heimdall in this observatory here. No one else likely can unless they also call up to Heimdall and say, "Hey, can I get a lift or something like that?" And so, so I don't know how I, I don't know how big of a thing it ends up being. Other than it's really just the Asgardians' way to. To get around, it's like you know, it's like taking out the bus line, and now they just have to use their spaceships or something. I I don't, I don't end up not having too big of a problem with it, and the fact that he says, "Forgive me, Jane." I mean, I really just think a lot of that for me, and again, I'm justifying it because I, I don't, I, I actually, especially on this watch, have really found a lot more chemistry in the relationship and really buy into it. But I think it's a, a lot of it is just that Loki keeps bringing it up. He keeps bringing up this whole thing with Jane. Oh, this girl, this girl, this girl. You're never going to see her again. And so when Thor is saying, "Forgive me, Jane," I think it's just you know because we've you know his brother has been drilling it into it so much that that's really what he's making out to, to be the 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 sole consequence here. So I end up really not finding any, any real issues with it. But I can totally see, uh, you know, both of your points with all of that.
0: Well, it's interesting because as you say that, I'm realizing, like, there could have been this very interesting sort of subplot going on of— and granted, we get more of this by Ragnarok, but, like— Yeah. Why does Asgard still keep this bridge that no one else can? And should they have this bridge? And is it maybe time for Asgard to kind of let go of that? And I could see that being an interesting subplot of, you know, Thor wants to be the person who can cross the Bifrost and go, you know, conquer any planet that's looked at him funny. But that, that's part of what he has to learn. Um, and, and so in that regard, I could see like breaking the Bifrost being like, yeah, this is Thor also accepting that that's not the kind of king he could be. But that's all headcanon at this point. None of that's actually in the story.
2: By the way, like you were saying um, a while back about the, the potential ramifications of like everything going bluey and, you know, you don't really know. I guess there's also kind of the implication that Thor really doesn't know if this is going to work. Like it may not work. And also the forgive me, Jane, I never thought about it at all. This is just occurring to me right now. But it's like it could theoretically also be, well, I don't know if this is actually going to harm Earth or not. Like it could it could actually (laughs) still do something. He's just doing the only thing he can think to do.
0: And it's funny, as you said, forgive me, as you said that, I thought you were going to go in a very different direction, which is that he's just promised Jane to deliver the evidence that she needs to prove her theory. Mm. And now he's destroying all the evidence and now she'd have no way to make any sense in a academic
1: presentation. So, yeah, Yeah, I, but uh, your point is funny because I wrote this in my notes, uh, you know, toward the end of the minute as everything falls apart and as the observatory is kind of like starting to crash down, it still is blasting the bifrost energy through space and it made me wonder, okay, so is that taking out Jotunheim and now it's like moving and it's going to be hitting all these other planets and other realms, like as, because it doesn't shut off mm-hmm. right away. Like what else is potentially getting hit in the process? But, um. Yeah, it's, it's there's a lot of stuff that I guess we'll just never know the answers to. But I, I you know, I, I think we're meant to just assume that it's it's not going to be that problem.
2: Well, I guess there's also something to be said, too, in a more general sense, like more, uh, I don't know, if you'd say philosophical, more like intellectual sense about like the nature of how we portray heroes. That for all the themes in this movie about like it's the father son thing, it's the brother thing. He's learning empathy. It comes down, though, to just an exercise in brute force as the salute. Mm. And I mean, there's something to be said about that, too, that like a lot of these things still basically reinforce the idea that when you want to solve something, hit it or or blow something up. And that's that's its own problem. And, And it's worth looking at in like the grander sense of how often that comes up as opposed to thinking your way through a problem. But then again, that's what Thor is. Exactly. See, the Thor and his hammer is the brute force that gets through the issue.
0: Yeah, I, I've commented before that, although it's my favorite movie, you know, um, Civil War, you know, uh, Tony says we need some kind of oversight. Steve says, well, yeah, but that version of oversight's terrible. You'd think that's when the negotiation starts, right, but instead it just becomes you know punchy punchy instead of boardroom meetings i do
2: have to I do have to point out that my wife is is not the biggest fan of the Marvel movies, mainly because civil war I think was kind of her breaking point because she said she could never understand i I explained to her this goes all the way back to the comics, so she can never understand this idea of the heroes always punching each other, and she said if Tony would just like buy a bunch of pizzas for everybody and they all just sit down and talk. Wouldn't that be better to solve everything? (laughs) Right? Yeah,
1: it would. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So funny. Yeah, I
0: I want to see uh, Civil War, the bureaucratic negotiation, but that movie's not going to get made.
1: (laughs) going back to this whole thing about Thor's decision to kind of, like, do all this and saying forgive me, Jane, I mean, we have to remember that, I mean, he's essentially making this decision. It's not to say, I'll never get to see you again. It's really to say, I need to save the people of Jotunheim. I potentially need to save the people of Asgard. I mean, we keep seeing debris mm-hmm. flying past them right. on the bridge, like, flying out into space. It makes me think Asgard is falling apart too. So I think that he, I think he really is saying, you know what, whatever the consequences are for destroying the body. Frost and and the Observatory and the Rainbow Bridge and all this, I think it's in order to save all these other, you know, thousands and thousands of lives out there, uh, more so than just Jane. I mean, that is what he says. But I really think that that's why he's he's making the decision he is here.
0: Yeah, well, it's that self-sacrifice thing. And it's the, I mean, so many heroes go through it. You know, think back to the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man of, you know, I can't be with this woman because I have to be a hero instead. We can talk about how idiotic that particular decision is, but, um, you know, but it, it's a moment of the hero, but it's also the moment of kingship, you know, of I have to be a king, not a person. And so my personal desire to be with this person, as you said, it has to be overweight overweighed by my responsibility to my subjects, to the jotuns, and to the, to the Asgardians and to everybody.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah. So I, I guess I wasn't sure if that changed your mind, because I know this was your your pick, your knit to pick here but it seemed to me like that's i mean it makes sense to me i guess
0: i, I guess him saying forgive me jane makes sense but it's but that i i don't buy i buy that this saves the lives of the otans i feel like there's an incredible damage being done to the asgardians that he's not taking into account but but again we just don't know
1: well and again i just i feel like he's potentially saving asgard too because it does seem like things are falling apart here as well
0: that's certainly a possible reading of it yeah
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So, what is it that happens when, like, the first hammer hits and Odin's eyes fly open? And we've seen that Odin has this kind of he, a little bit. He is reacting to the world around him. You know, he shed the tear when Thor, quote unquote, died. What's happening here? Is it just that Odin's connection to the Bifrost is so deep? Uh, is it that Odin even is horrified at what's happening? What, what do you think is happening in this moment?
2: I got the impression that whether he would be horrified, it's such a shocking. Thing to be potentially separating Asgard from everything else that yeah he's reacting because of his you know deep mystical connection to everything mm-hmm. associated with the realm and the bridge, and the notion that Thor is actually shattering that was enough to you know fire the nerves nervous system, wake him up, and that's what whatever his reaction would be, whether he would see it as the right choice to make or not. It's just that it's a shocking moment, and that's what that's what woke him up.
1: I feel like they have painted this, this picture that Odin is so connected to Asgard that without an alarm going off, he can tell there are Jotuns in the vault. You know, like all these different things throughout the film where he just seems so intrinsically a part of Asgard that it's almost like, that blow of the hammer like hitting him in the back of and hitting his spine and like waking him up and it's like it's that thing that like triggers like i time to wake up yeah i don't know it's a very interesting element it also when i watch it it speaks to me of you know something that they edited in late in the process saying you know what do people are they going to be confused that odin's awake suddenly <laughs> so i feel like let's just cut in real quick that his eye opens that's be.
0: that's fair that's fair <laughs> So then we get the deconstruction of falling bifrosts. Um, the, the bifrost starts falling apart. And I feel like it's an interesting scene because I feel like we kind of learn a lot about how, how this all works as we see it coming apart. What, what do you notice? Like after the hammer has fallen and everything starts coming apart?
1: It's such an interesting – I mean we've talked about it quite a bit on the show. And uh, and Arnold, you brought it up as well. Just how how fantastically designed they have come up with this mm. idea of a rainbow bridge and this bifrost energy and everything – the way that Thor starts hammering at it and breaking it apart, it's almost like it's almost like this plastic, this ice, yes. this this foreign substance that you just don't really understand it. But I, I find that it's so I don't know, it's just so cool the way that it ends up working, the way that it kind of slowly fractures as he starts hitting at it. I I'm,
2: it, it definitely feels yeah. like that kind of look you get when you're you're like cutting into very very thick deep ice, and again, it's just. Great. It, it has a real tactile sense almost to it. You can feel what that would be like. Yeah. And it's just a great moment.
0: I had a moment of not the most self-aware where I was writing in my notes. Oh, who knew? The bifrost is made of ice. The bi- the frost. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah, it kind of makes, I mean, you know, these are Vikings stories. Like, it makes sense that, like, this would be, like, made of ice. And as it breaks apart, yeah, you see the, the, the chunks. It really looks like, you know, your ice pick's finally gone through there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and then we get, you know, the, the shock wave that kind of radiates out, we get this huge light and explosion. And I love that both Thor and Loki are both blasted back. You know, that this is just like obviously this is this is a release of energy that none of them were expecting.
1: Well, and we didn't even talk about the fact that I, I, I find it so fantastic the way that loki is so shocked by what thor is doing that his reaction is i have to stop you he grabs the spear and and basically (laughs) runs at him ready to like to to stab him to stop him And, and i love the way that all of that is timed so effectively in the course of the hammer blows and loki running and that last bit is as that last hammer strike hits and blasts both of them back. It's just it it all works so exceptionally well through that whole uh, last moment here.
2: Yeah, and, definitely. And it's also another part of that thing I was talking about earlier where it's like Loki can't actually believe Thor would do what he's doing. It's like, it, it it's also... I said before, like, it was hard to explain because to me, there are a lot of layers to it. It all goes back to that Dr. Master thing for me. There's like an element of the Sherlock Moriarty thing where sometimes with these kind of relationships, the villain is usually associated with the hero, either in this case, you know, overtly, like they were raised as brothers or like brothers, or they have a brotherly kind of connection in some way. And there's always that element of, well, the villain wants to kill the hero, but then you also always get that feeling that maybe... They would never actually go so far as to kill the hero because really, ultimately, they love the person. And and he, and if they did go through it, that they would deeply regret it afterward because they really don't want to. And here it also feels a little bit like, oh, I thought we were playing a game. What, you're actually going to destroy the bridge now? I thought this was the thing we're doing. And there's a little bit of that, too, which also gets back for me the idea that there's a childlike quality to their whole relationship that seems to have never actually grown up. You know, as you're
0: saying that, I'm reminded of the Joker and Batman very much having that relationship. And in The Dark Knight, there's a wonderful line where Joker says, you know, he's like a dog chasing a car. He doesn't want to catch the car. He wants to play the game. Right. And, And yeah, and I love that. It's that it's that that you know earlier when thor said enough you know we're really realizing just how much he means that and just how deep he's willing to go with that Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: i love also that as everything starts to come apart you know we've talked a lot about kind of the physics of asgard and how does this world work and and you see at one point as it's all coming apart you see the um the the turret the the observatory kind of from a uh the angle of outside Asgard and you see that literally this is the edge of the world. You know, you see the water kind of like dripping down the side. And I just love that shot because at least for me, it had never been quite so clear that this observatory really is. It, it's the end of the world of Asgard and everything out there is stars.
1: It's a great shot. Uh, the, all of this, like, the because, and you see like the, the way that it blasts the water from the Asgardian Sea back away. And you can really see that rock line that it's built on really just very well and it, it's interesting how i don't know just how definitive they make that but i think in context of kind of like that Asgardian, like in the comics kind of just that floating island in space like they they found a really interesting way to kind of do that and and again I, I love the observatory i love how they really crafted that in the film to design it this way so it's not just you know the rainbow off into space i i think it works well to kind of create and again, it works well in context of a movie like this where, you know, it is, it is you know, this climax of our story is happening essentially on the edge of the world.
2: Yeah, and it's not only just literally world building and like, the way they're setting up these shots, but also part of that thing we've talked about before about how much work this movie is doing to carry an audience along that started with one rich guy in, in a suit. You know, and saying, "All right, yeah. now, now so we're, we're, we're doing aliens. Now we're doing gods at the end of the world, <laughs> water going off into nothingness." It's like, "Just stick with us on this," and it and it works great. And it's also still just so uh, grand and poetic
1: looking. Some of these shots, the shot of the two of them, uh, it's I I I always enjoy like that shot where the blast is pushing them up into the mm. air and you just see the bodies of loki and thor kind of flipping up through the flames and uh it's, i mean so intense that it, lo- it knocked loki's helmet off which is is <laughs> kind of flying by itself it's i don't know it's just it's it's a cool shot as you kind of see that uh and and well and you also realize just how strong and all nearly impervious these as guardians really are in moments mm. like this too
0: mm-hmm. definitely Well, I think that's about where our minute wraps up. Any other last things people want to say about either this minute itself or the whole five we talked about?
1: I don't think so. This is just that moment where at the very end of it, you see the turret kind of going down while it's still blasting. And that's what made me laugh. Like, is it just shooting this giant laser through space all willy nilly, just taking out whatever it it happens to touch? Yeah.
2: If this were like a Douglas Adams story, we'd find out later an entire civilization had been wiped out in that (laughs) moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Right In the process of trying to stop Loki from doing exactly that, Thor does that. <laughs> Completely. Yeah.
0: Well, Arnold, thank you so much. it have been so great having you on this week. Uh, for our listeners who have not experienced you before, uh, just give a quick rundown. Where can people find your writings, your work, uh, where they find more Dr.
2: Bloomberg? Well, you can find me on Twitter all the time, at Doctor of the Dead. My publishing company is atbpublishing.com, where we do books, uh, pop culture, nonfiction. Uh, We probably have something about your fandom there. So take a look. (laughs) And uh, my wife, Natalie, and I do a regular podcast on horror and science fiction and lots of other things at ghoulsinthehouse.com. Awesome. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. And
0: picklesandbean.com also. <laughs> picklesandbean.com. Awesome. Well, I'm sure we'll have links to all that in our show notes. Thank you for so much for being here. Uh, if folks want to find more of my stuff, you can go to theethicalpanda.com. That's where you'll find my website, on th- my podcast, Superhero Ethics. We're diving into kind of ethical issues of all the different superhero stories. And we take that at a pretty broad. We just did an episode on the Golden Girls, because living in Miami on a su- uh, substitute teacher salary, that's a superpower. Um So you can check that out. <laughs> check out Star Wars Universe podcast. Check out All the great podcasts you'll find on the Next Real Family of Podcasts, and most importantly, folks, have a great day!
1: Until next time, True Believers.
0: This season's music is "One Last Rhyme" by Martin Puringer. Find the show at TrueStory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy
2: Nelson.